0: Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, the podcast where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today we're just going to make it up as we go. Today we are jumping into the world of the Christopher Guest mockumentary with Waiting for Guffman. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia.
1: And I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in
0: Boston. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers and we try to make our case. Last week Adam chose Waiting for Guffman, so in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask him to defend his pick. Why does this Christopher Guest film matter for the work of the church?
1: And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we offer uh, up some specific ideas for what you might do with Waiting for Guffman for the lectionary week ahead, which will be Year C, April 17th, the fourth Sunday of Eastertide. Finally, we'll offer up some postludes, some preacher thoughts from each of us on something else we're watching or following or listening to.
0: All right, so let's begin, Adam. Here in 2016 the use of documentary voice to tell a fictional story is so common that it's hard to imagine a time when it was weird, before all the fake reality shows and mockumentaries when it was just Christopher Guest. In 1984, he wrote and starred in a little movie called This is Spinal Tap, a fake documentary about a fake arena rock band, but it was another 13 years before he would return to the form, this time as the director of Waiting for Guffman. Now, Adam, I've watched a lot of The Office and I've watched a lot of Parks and Recreation and revisiting Waiting for Guffman, which is about this small town theater troupe putting on one big show. Well, it felt like I had found the grand unifying equation for so much of the comedy that's followed its wake. We've got a lot of improvised dialogue. We've got a lot of fake direct to camera confessionals. We've got this combination of cringe humor and heart that seems perfectly made for what used to pass for NBC's Thursday night lineup. But just because it's influential doesn't necessarily make it great. And it doesn't even necessarily make it relevant for us as pastors. So help me put this in perspective, justify my faith. Why does waiting for Guffman matter for the work of the church?
1: Well, I think initially the thing that I love most about this movie is that it is an apology for small town life, which as a minister is also an apology for small church life. Uh, This movie is funny, not just because the people are buffoons, but they're, they're clowns, they're clownish. And the thing about clowns is that clowns fail where we expect them to succeed and they succeed in places that we so often fail. And so they put on this show, it's an actual show and it's terrible. But they do it with a measure of tenderness and sincerity and vulnerability, and there isn 't a hint of the type of showbiz cynicism they truly believe in this thing that they 're creating and um, that 's christopher Guest's true gift, I think is that he doesn 't intend to make fun of any of these people; it seems like he actually loves his characters, and he wants you to love them too and the amazing thing is they are lovable all of them even when they're idiotic even when they're awkward even when they're not particularly talented
0: which is Uh, most of the time i mean which is most of the time
1: um i have a friend uh who uh who is makes friends easily with awkward people and we always that explains a lot actually (laughs) exactly right and we always said that she had the preferential option for the awkward <laughs> and i think so does christopher guess yeah sure absolutely that he that he seriously loves those awkward people and all of their awkwardness and um this i can't help but see small church ministry in the midst of it all right like It's small church ministry is something you and I are both familiar with. And, and I think it's great gift to the church is that small church ministry fails when it tries to think of itself as Broadway, as if it has the ability, the means or the resources or the temperament to compete with big, huge mega churches. And so they fail in trying to be big. And yet the thing that they do so well is care for one each other, care for each other. They sincerely hope and dreams in such local flavor and color. And I think that's a great gift of community theater. And I think guest gets that. It's that your community comes to watch it and they come because you're performing, not because the show is great. And so the community is strengthened by the support of the people. And so in the movie, I think of, uh, of Perlman's wife in the audience, who is so excited to see her husband perform or, uh, uh, the, the councilman who just so wants to be part of the play. These are experiences and typologies that have so much overlap with the small church ministry experience. Um, I particularly love the historian in Blaine, Missouri, Mm -hmm. um, Because he seems like he's pulled out of every small church I've ever been in, where there's the guy who loves to tell you why your understanding of history is all wrong and is going to give you the very in-depth, detailed version of how this church came to be. I I love the idea that there's this overqualified member, the music director in this case in the movie, who could totally be a part of any professional outfit, but chooses to ply his trade with this community theater which is in some ways beneath him, but not. So that speaks to me. I, there's a saying that, that rolls around in my head a lot, which is they used to say that Neil Young can make a stadium feel like a living room. And as I think about the church and its ministry, I see a lot of small churches trying to make a living room feel like a stadium. And so this movie is a reminder to me that the work of so many small churches is good, faithful work, and it's also funny and joyful and crazy and awkward and weird and really rewarding. They are so local, and that's what makes me so happy. And so I watch this movie, and I feel the need to call up old parishioners and tell them that their way of doing church is, is a good way, is the right way. So that's me, Matt. What What about you? Did Did my choice stir in you any ideas about church and ministry?
0: Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm on the same page with you. I'm a little bit less convinced that the film is as uncynical as you're making it out to be. (laughs) Right. I mean, okay. So going around Facebook earlier today for at least in my feed was this meme and it was a picture of a small country church. And the text said, I keep waiting for a church leadership conference where mega church pastors sign up to listen to small churches, tell them how 99% of the church does it, which is this kind of, you know, the joke is that most of these conferences are a bunch of small church pastors who are showing up listening to the guy from the big city tell them how it's supposed to go. And the implication, right, is that small congregations are real good places, and they don't have to be different than they are, and they don't want to be different than they are, that they are good just as they are. And there's this kind of idealization of small church ministry there. And I think you get that, as you're pointing out, in the kind of idealization of this small town theater troupe, and they're... They're kind of pure motives about who they are. But I, I don't think their motives are pure. I mean, we have to talk about Guffman, right? I mean, the right, whole... Right. The, what, what I want to see and what I think you're describing is a movie where they start off wanting to make it to the big time and then they learn the joy of doing what they do for its own sake. And they have the <laughs> approval right. of the town and the crowd and at the end it doesn't matter that Guffman doesn't show up because... They have found their real joy here, and it's the end of Wizard of Oz, right? Like, I, There's you know, no I'm, place like home, right. Right, and, but, but that's not what we get. We get this brutal ending of this film.
1: Oh, it's totally
0: tragic. Where it's like, it, it's, is it's, it is utterly tragic. Un- unrepentantly dark, where it's nice. not Guffman, and they, the camera just pans around, and you can watch their hearts break in slow motion, cut to black. I mean, the come down from this thing is brutal, and I feel like it outs this kind of... Actually, they weren't in it for the town. They weren't in it for the joy and the art of it. They were in it for themselves and the pride of the thought that maybe they were good enough to do something, quote, big and important and big city, unquote. And that's where I wrestle with this, and I I wrestle with it as the pastor of a small church that I'm not sure that we actually sufficiently are okay with being who we are. I feel like that most of the small churches that I know, my, mine included, you know, if you could give us a chance to go to Broadway, we'd probably take it.
1: Right. And, and I don't want to romanticize either small church ministry or this movie and its vision of community theater. I, I, I think actually Guest is smarter than that. Um, I think he recognizes and values small town life and finds its picadillos funny and humorous, um, I think he thinks it's very sad that these characters, having tasted something as genuine as the applause of the people in front of them, would then go and seek that and to find that in a different place. I, I think he finds that desire to gather people to these centers of performance art Hollywood and uh, and New York or, you know, wherever uh, or Miami in the at the end of the movie for for Perlman. Right. I think he finds that desperately tragic, that that sense of accomplishment that comes after the play before Guffman gets there, before the person who they think is Guffman gets there, is then destroyed because I think he's I think guest thinks that they've done an actually a good job, like a real important thing, and I think similarly in our churches, like the temptation for ministers to use small churches as a stepping stone is totally there and and it makes a lot of sense, right like it's I don't want to romanticize or romanticize small church ministry because like fighting for resources and trying to keep doors open and watching people die and not be replaced by younger family. Like all of that stuff is brutal and it's very hard. Um, And yet I think what Guffman does is capture at least some of that sort of madcap zaniness that can only happen when like the treasurer is your, is the sister of the the the, the head of session, right? <laughs> like the sure. like when, when it just has the familiarity that is bred within small town life creates a different types of community. I think I think that's what Guest is trying to to show, and I think that that's what char- small church ministry will will proves out.
0: Again, I I think we're on the same page about what the the kind of joy in this film is, and I guess maybe. You're giving him more space between himself, the director's point of views per se and and the characters and i and i'm I'm not sure that I'm quite there it does, it's kind of a trope of his right that uh it's not just in Waiting for Guffman, but it happens in best in Show it happens in Mighty Wind where you have these characters drawn to these kind of performative heights and then after and then there's this epilogue where they're always often some dusty locale somewhere desperately holding on to something that was never really meant to be theirs i mean you get that at the end of most of his films
1: i think you're right to recognize that and i think it's also important to question whether or not you can even call Guest the director in this sense considering how much of the of the work is improvised as the plot is more or less set you have people making their own characters and trying to figure out what the decisions for those characters are
0: Maybe I'm enough of a notorist. I don't have any trouble seeing him as the director here. I mean, I th- I think if you look at his body of work, it's really hard not to notice a pretty strong signature. And I mean, as you were texting to me, like how many reams of footage that go into this that have to be called out and and called through. And just because right. they're improvising on camera doesn't mean that he doesn't have a tremendous amount of work to do.
1: And in that way, he's a director, like a you know, like a an actual documentarian as a director right? Like they yeah, make the choice sure. to how to tell the story from the reams of footage rather than trying to set up the shot beforehand.
0: So the most interesting scene in this film to me is uh, the scene where they have to go to Corky's trailer and convince him to come back onto the job. Yes.
1: Let's talk about this.
0: i want to talk about that a little bit. And not only for the like weird 2016 political overtones of the town's councilman who wants to make the town special again, which just sounds like a campaign rally to me. Uh, but I mean, there's a there's a kind of weird resurrection scene in this trailer, and I you know Corky has lost his will for something, and it takes this group to go in and ask him to take his magic wand and wave it and turn nothing into something um, because the town desperately needs it, and and it working on this history of what he did in Backdraft, which is my favorite, one of my favorite. Running gags in this film is the backdraft. <laughs> it's amazing.
1: Theater. It makes me people don't like fire. Yeah, milk. exactly. So anyway, that's another.
0: that was the scene that I actually had to stop and rewatch that one a couple of times just because it it struck me as being r- really interesting and and a little bit out of sorts for his later work. I mean, there's a, a sense of the the director and artist himself being on the line there that I don't think you get elsewhere.
1: Right, but and and it it's also I think perfect. Perfectly captures the parochialism of small town life, which is to say, like, look, if there is no uh, no show, there is no 150th anniversary. If there's no 150th anniversary, there is no Blaine. If there's no Blaine, there's no Missouri. But it takes a deep sense of parochialism to see that and to sense that. That, you know, like we're the first that's going to do the 150th anniversary and therefore we need something really special. And therefore we need the outsider to be the one to show us how to do it, which I, I find really interesting is that the only person in this movie who's not like immediately from Blaine is Corky. And um, and they don't like the Bob Balaban character uh, because he's familiar and he's not really exotic in the way that they imagine the rest of the world to be exotic, and yet he 's like fully competent in a way that Corky 's not, but it it I think captures that experience of of valuing the outside experience, even though you don't have the um, the courage or the opportunity to go and seek it out and maybe that 's where the a little spark of hope is in those last sort of more tragic moments of uh, when you see the cast at the end, which is like, maybe they get to see something different, you know, like it's not just Blaine any longer.
0: I mean, do you kind of just want to walk up to the characters at some point in that show and kind of shake them a bit and say, you know, this, this town is fine, whether or not you pull this off or not. I mean, it, it, it seems like, um, we're talking about the the inherent joy of this community being a community for itself and loving itself and loving its quirks and the kind of parallels between that and what we see in congregational ministry especially in small congregational ministry but i i by by going to corky in the first place they're calling out for a kind of ambition and perfectionism and i think a uh a kind of right. real pride that i mean i think it's broken from the very beginning not that it's not totally human and i do it all the time but there's that sense of it's baked into small church life too i mean i could totally see our church deciding we were going to have a 150th anniversary thing and it becoming this giant behemoth that
1: yeah where you where you have to manufacture stakes right i mean and and I think that's such an interesting idea to explore, which is by manufacturing stakes and saying like, oh, this really matters when from the outside, everyone seems to understand that it doesn't matter. But when the manufactured stakes do bring you to new heights and give you opportunity to try and do something that you've never done before, then in some ways they serve a pretty important uh, important function, I think which is to remind people that their small-town life um, and the, the borders that they see as part of their life um, can be transcended.
0: One of the tragedies here is that the, the visitor who is not Mort Guffman actually quite enjoys the show, right? I mean, he stands up at the end of the show and is thrilled to come backstage and meet all the cast and feels genuinely excited to have Walked in off the street to like some other town's totally introspective community theater production that, by all accounts, is just not good. And like, (laughs) either this man has the worst standards in theater in recorded history, or like, he actually is kind of compelled by what they do. And as soon as they realize that he's not who they thought he was going to be the reality is in our small town small church on a sunday morning there are um visitors to the church and then there are visitors to the church and like if you were a visitor to the church and you are passing through and just happen to walk through the doors on sunday morning and and spend an hour with us like that's great and we're lovely and we're happy to welcome you if you were a visitor to the church who was moved to our community with two young children god help you we will never let you breathe for the hour and a half that you're here on Sunday morning, because you are the visitor that could help us get to the big time, right? And and I think we miss the kind of opportunity of enjoying the moment that we have with Not Guffman, whose name I can't actually remember because he's so unimportantly treated at the end of the film. Um, once it's real, once it's recognized that he's not who they wanted him to be.
1: Uh, oh, and he's a tremendous foil to their ambitions, right? I mean, he just seems to have such, such s- small ideas so much so that he, he picks up one of the balloons that falls at the end and says, oh, I'm just, I'm going to give this to my new grandson. And that's, that's the little gift that he's found to like go and bring back to someone. And it seems like he's, he's taken the thing for what it was. Right. And he's like, that was, I loved it. Right. Like, exactly. Do you think we could go to Broadway? Yes, I do. And then he seems to pass through the movie with a sense of wonder in a way that the rest of the the cast doesn't, or did have, but doesn't have by the end.
0: All right, Adam, I think we've improvised enough of this conversation. Let's move on. The next segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So we're looking at the lectionary passages for April 17th, which is the fourth Sunday of Easter. And what I want to know is, preacher to preacher, Sunday's coming. Where does Waiting for Guffman show up in your sermon?
1: I'm going to repeat what what my teacher once said to me, which is um, the sermon begins with the reading of scripture. Uh, And in honor of Guffman and Corky's deep and abiding commitment to theater, I want to lodge a full-throated praise and call for acting out the scriptures within the church. Oh, boy. Uh, The use of impromptu actors can be this amazing opportunity to see the scriptures rather than just hear them. And in every generation, the church laments the lack of biblical literacy within the congregation. And I think part of the deficiency is that they only ever hear the scriptures and they never see them. Moreover, they never see the people in their community embody them. Like I said earlier, I, I love that community theater is born of the community. Even the subject of the show in Waiting for Guffman is the community. They're acting out their history. They're acting out the stories that are central to their identity as parts and citizens of Blaine. I mean, there's that that moment where the descendant of Blaine tells Corky that she longs to see her ancestor embodied on the stage. Uh, and the scriptures in this particular lectionary week are perfect for acting out. There's like the one where Peter raises a dead woman. There's John's crazy revelation of those who the scripture says survived a great ordeal. Yeah. And have, have are praising around the throne of God. There's Psalm 23, which is uh, a more embodied psalm. The, the images lend themselves to a type of acting out. And then there's Jesus in the temple talking about sheep and God and saying, I and the Father am one, Uh, all of these are really great opportunities to get your own community theater uh, going in your church, all right? So for example, let's just think about Psalm 23 and why acting it out could be a great benefit for the church. Psalm 23 has this wonderful balance to it that I think could be shown in the acting of it. So there is the, sh- um, the, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, and the shepherd leads me beside still waters, right? And so you can, you can have the shepherd figure in front of whoever it is the, po- the poet is or the speaker in the poem is. And then um, there's this moment where you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and God is with them. And so now this, the, the, the poet and their, um, their position to the shepherd changes. And so the shepherd is no longer out in front, but right next to them. And then Psalm 23 ends with this um, lovely image. And goodness and mercy should follow me all the days of my life. And so there in the Psalm, you see this wonderful balance of God in front God next to me and God behind me. And it's cool to say that. It's great to see it. To show people a physical manifestation of God by having all of these people act out what goodness and mercy would look like from behind to keep the good shepherd standing in front, to keep God next to whoever the whoever gets to portray the psalmist and to have goodness and mercy follow the psalmist like it it just lends itself to using bodies in on stage and in position and so as as you begin to think about what you're going to preach i want to encourage you to help your congregation see the scriptures before you actually preach them because like i said at the top the beginning of the sermon is the reading of scripture and i think it can also be that the beginning of the sermon is also the acting out of scripture so that's what i'm thinking what about you matt
0: i am thinking about revelation so i'm gonna this is gonna be the only five minutes you will have this week in podcast where someone makes a case for waiting for guffman as an interpretation (laughs) of revelation 7 9 through 17 i'm very confident of that
1: you find it here nowhere else. nowhere
0: else folks All right, I want to use, and this is with heavy credit to um, some of Brian Blunt's work on Revelation, who teaches now, who is the president now at Union Seminary in Richmond. So this Revelation text opens with the phrase, After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. I want to talk about the white robes, the whiteness of those robes, has been used to justify all sorts of bad things. It has been used to justify histories of white supremacy in the church and elsewhere. It's also been used as a kind of blanket symbol of innocence and sinlessness, right? So that the people who deserve to be worshiping the throne and have come through the great ordeal this text talks about are the ones who have never had to get their hands dirty, and they haven't had they haven't, Which is um, like
1: a, a pure extension of the obsession with purity that was happening in that Second Temple Judaism that was going on at that time.
0: Absolutely. But I think the, the helpful thing that Blunt brings to this text is to point out that this is totally inverted. And it, he talks about uh, how in the early church after baptism, that the baptizees would have very, very regularly be put into a new garment. And so that the ones who have gone through this ordeal and been washed are the ones who have actually um ones who have actually had to get into the field of play and do stuff. They're the ones who have um stepped up and done the work of witnessing and done the faithful work of uh being rabble rousers for the early gospel of Jesus Christ, especially in the political context of the Roman Empire. They're the ones who have made this faithful declaration of wanting to belong to something that is uncomfortable and demand something. And that's, that's when you get the new robe that is clean and white. It's because you've been dirty before.
1: Well, and it says that it's, the, the robe is itself washed in the blood of the lamb, right? I right, mean...
0: exactly. My, my short take here is that whiteness in this text is a rec- is a commendation for the folks who have volunteered. And I think in Waiting for Guffman, what we have is a celebration of volunteerism. I, <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm thinking about the beginning of this film, where you have this snaking line of folks who have all shown up to audition for something, and the the exuberance and the enthusiasm with which they throw themselves into it, and we've talked about all the kinds of reasons for that, but that there's something um, celebratory and worth celebrating, and certainly Guest gets into it, about folks who have not been content to stand on the sidelines but have decided to give themselves over for something and frankly in the life of the church i wish finding volunteers was that easy you no know, i i wish that uh i could declare uh, auditions to be on the mission of no witness committee and the line would snake around the door but there is something in this text that i commend to you all as preachers that is just about the the tough work of getting off the couch and walking out the door and um, standing up for what it is to be a witness and a disciple, especially in tide, and being willing to uh, get your hands dirty in the process. That's what I've got.
1: Right. I mean, it, it reminds me of uh, so much of the work done on uh, and research done on the faith lives of young people now. Makes the case that if you want to know what young people 's faith looks like, just look at their parents right sure right and um and if they don't have a deep faith it 's likely that their parents have never sort of stepped out and modeled what sacrifice looks like for your faith or or recognizing how your faith might actually um, uh influence you to go along in a different direction than the direction other people are going in. Mm. And it's, it's an actual call to stand up and be different. Mm. And that, and that idea of volunteerism is, I think, totally present in this revelation text and then shows up in all of these call stories later. Right?
0: Yeah. I think we better move on. Waiting for Guffman is a classic right now. You can go rent it on iTunes, Amazon, or YouTube. If our podcast were actually a Christopher Guest movie, this is the part where we would flash forward six months and you and I would be doing a live taping somewhere in a slot machine room of a C-level Vegas casino. But instead, we've got to move on to our last segment. Or
1: at some, like, megachurch. You yeah, know, some, we might yeah, make it, man.
0: Yeah, you never know. He's coming. Guffman's coming. This, this is called Post Ludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your Post Lude for the week?
1: Since we're talking about theater so much today, uh, I want to recommend something a little weird. I want everyone to check out this YouTube clip of Ian McCullen, um, who is Magneto and Gandalf, among other things. And uh, it's from the seventies when he was really one of the driving forces of the Royal Shakespeare company. And he's talking about playing Macbeth and in specific, delivering the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow soliloquy that's in the final act of the play. It's a, a speech about, uh, about death that comes on the heels of Lady Macbeth's death within the play. And McClellan is really young in the clip, and his shirt is, like, unbuttoned down to the navel in the way that it was, like, totally appropriate to have that happen in the 70s. But he speaks about how one has to be so thoroughly Im- embodying these words that they become as if you thought them in order to do that you need to understand their sense you need to understand their deep and broad meanings the emotions that solicit them from the actor and what you're trying to solicit from the audience and he's just wonderfully articulate as he describes the soliloquy and i kept thinking that watching this would be so helpful for manuscript preachers Hmm. Because so often the manuscript exists like ever in front of the preacher. And when it's in front, uh, figuratively, um, it's noticeable, not just in the way that that the preacher looks down to see the words, but in the way that the manuscript tends to dictate cadence and rhythm and tone. Right. And so manuscripts tend to mess with our delivery. The trick is not necessarily to scrap the manuscript, but to ingest the manuscript so that It's so fully embodied in you that it is no longer in front of you, but inside of you. Uh, So my postlude today is if you want to become a better manuscript preacher, go listen to Ian McClellan talk about Macbeth on YouTube.
0: Can I go listen to him talk about Macbeth no matter what? Yes. Okay.
1: No, it's it's awesome. It's really lovely. And then they show – the clip shows him – doing the uh, Macbeth speech at the end of um, – uh, at the show that he did for the RSC. It, on a side note, that's totally unrelated. Um, his his buddy, uh, Charles Xavier, uh, Patrick Stewart, also right. a renowned member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, just did a Macbeth movie. And so he called up Ian e. McClellan and said, like, all right, give me the tips, what I need to do. And he said – uh, the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech—it all hinges on the word "and." I don't I have no idea what that means. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we'll, we'll <laughs> but but apparently that, that like that that raised in Patrick Stewart some great insight, and he um, and now tells it in like press junkets. But that's me, Matt. What
0: about you? So we are getting towards Pentecost, and in the spirit of getting towards Pentecost, I want to talk about fire. Uh, just to plant a fire thought in y'all's heads before we get too close to it, uh, which is that uh, over the past week, I watched the first episode on Netflix of a four-part cooking and food documentary called Cooked, and the first part is about fire. This whole series is hosted by Michael Pollan. It's based on his book, and it the four parts are on four different elemental forces in our cooking, uh, and the first one is fire, and so... I recommend this to you, maybe unless you're a vegetarian, in which case an hour's worth of watching meat on a grill may be too much for you. (laughs) Uh, I, I have mixed feelings about Michael Pollan. He's kind of a thought leader in the local and sustainable food movement. In times, I find him kind of insufferable. I mean, this documentary, this hour is structured around the the backyard pig roast that they do at his place in Berkeley, and it's like how many hundreds of dollars they spent for this locally raised free-range pig, and then he's going to tell me about how that's the idealized way of eating without any acknowledgement that this is beyond the kind of socioeconomic capacity of basically everybody, uh, and that only by living in the suburbs of Berkeley can we get in touch with our naturalist and primordial roots. And I oh, find that get ready
1: it, it's in the next three that, yeah, two. I'm not sure. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm going on, but I do. I recommend the episode to you, if only because of the really interesting anthropological history of fire that's going on in here, where they're talking about fire as the first form of cooking and the kind of distinguishing element between us and quote unquote animals that fire allows us to chew our food much less so that we don't have to spend our days chewing and without spending our days chewing we have time to do all kinds of other things like develop higher thought processes and develop um, critical thinking skills and all the stuff that enables the construction of civilization in the first place. So quite apart from all of the kind of pro-social and security elements of sitting around an actual fire that the use of fire in cooking is one of the building blocks so to speak of of humanity in the 21st century and in so many centuries going back so
1: yeah the so the the harvard biologist primatologist like richard rangham right. wrote the book catching fire is really good it's it's excellent very if you're cool. into like primatology and evolutionary biology
0: yeah so that was the stuff that really struck me and you may even know much more about it but uh I thought it was interesting given that in Pentecost, on Pentecost in church, we generally speaking treat fire as this kind of ultra natural destructive wild force. It's the embodiment of the spirit roaming free, right, as it does on that first Pentecost Sunday. And I think that the show here has some kind of other contributions to that conversation that could be interesting and stimulating as those of you who are thinking about that imagery coming up with Pentecost, just not if you're vegetarians.
1: No, I think that's, it's a great, it's a great connection because I mean, what Rangum is saying and, and I think what Pollen is trying to say in this, in this cooked work is part of what it means to be human is to cook. Right. Right. Yeah. And, um, how do we, ent- insert that idea into some larger theological anthropology um, what does it mean for us as humans to to cook and to no longer chew I, I've been thinking a lot about the um, the ancient monastics disca- uh, describing themselves as ruminants as cud chewing people in part because um, they chew on scripture all day and how that image has been so important for a, as a description of the life of the Christian. And, and Rangam is saying, um, we don't have to chew any longer. And that's, what's made us human. I mean, I think there's a lot of really cool conversations to be had in, just with that, with that work. So Matt, that's awesome. And, uh, it's a good place to end. That wraps up this episode of Technicolor Jesus but we're not quite done i got to pick this week and now it's matt's turn matt what are we going to watch next where are we going
0: so we have watched a lot of really good movies i mean i think generally speaking we've watched a lot of masterpieces like chinatown clearly a masterpiece ghostbusters masterpiece spirited away masterpiece i think i want to make the case that movies can be relevant and powerful for the church without being perfect And that there are some films out there that are going to be really helpful for us in ministry without necessarily being perfectly constructed and construed.
1: All right. Please say San Andreas. Yeah, no, definitely. We're definitely.
0: (laughs) So what I want us to go and watch is F. Gary Gray's 2015 film, a Shred out of Compton. All right. Uh, Have you seen it? No, I haven't actually. All right. So I, I think this is going to be good conversation for us. So that's, that's what we're doing next time. Thanks for listening, folks Fantastic. Uh, don't forget to find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you have questions about the show, if you want to tell us how we got it all wrong, and we surely did, if you want to praise our great insight, which you probably don't, come to our Facebook page and let us know what you think, or leave us a review on iTunes. They are invaluable in helping other folks find the show. Tell a friend, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. See the man with the stage. Start off.